Friends, I'm always so thankful for those who volunteer around the church, and particularly in the role of liturgists, which we are regularly filling spaces for, and I should let you know that most weeks do not involve reading 36 verses of Scripture that span three pages in the Bible, but sometimes it does. Thank you, Sally. That was quite a journey through Scripture, but it's a good one, and I'm excited to deal with it today as we begin a new series that we're calling Traveling Mercies. There's something exciting about traveling somewhere, whether for the first time or to a familiar place, something thrilling and rejuvenating about breaking free from the familiar, stepping away from the ordinary to see and explore and experience the world from a new vantage point for a moment. Now, I know we are a congregation that has some travelers in it, so I want to take a moment to ask, out of those of you who are gathered here in person, or maybe we've got an eye on the live chat as well, what are some of the favorite places that you've ever traveled to, near or far away? Go ahead and shout them out. Israel. Oh, that's a good one. I haven't ever made it there. Where else? Antarctica. Oh, my goodness. Yes, we are a well-traveled congregation. That is very far away. Where else? Alaska. Oh, I have a little story about Alaska. That's coming up in a minute here. Anywhere else? Lake Michigan. Oh, oh, so close. And yet getting there is like getting into a whole nother world. Wonderful. Oh, this, this week and next, it's going to be all about traveling, centered on traveling, the idea that stepping out into the world, whether that's going across the globe or just exploring things around home as if for the first time, can be a spiritual experience. And so we're calling this traveling mercies, which is maybe a familiar phrase, one that's used to request prayers for safe travels. It's a phrase that actually goes back to the 19th century, was frequently used by missionaries um, going off to far off places. But I titled this because I got to wondering if the same phrase might also be used to suggest that traveling might encourage us to experience God's mercy in a richer way, whether moving through the world as a traveler might be a powerful way to open our hearts to the world that God adores. And so this week and next, we're going on a journey, not to Antarctica or Israel or Lake Michigan, but today to Samaria. So pack light, grab a map, and let's step out into the world ready to marvel and wonder, ready to have our souls widened by what we see. And actually, we'll be joined in a little while by Rick Steves, the famed travel writer on video, who is also a Christian who sees travel as a uniquely spiritual experience. He shared this with one of the United Methodist agencies in a bit of a webinar, so we're going to use a video clip or two to bring his perspective into our exploration. Let's begin with prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, I am not allowed to plan vacations anymore. I did just once, which was enough. It was our honeymoon. Jennifer was hard at work planning our wedding. Takes all sorts of work to pull a wedding off. And so I offered to take one thing off of her plate and to take on our trip to Alaska And Jennifer agreed, which I think she would later come to regret. We were excited because neither of us had ever been to Alaska before. That's why we picked it as a destination still within the 50 United States, but far away, somewhere new for both of us. And so I started researching, came up with the various locations in Alaska that we would visit, planned the route between them, booked the airfare and the lodging. 
Now, the trip had a few hiccups at the start. Not my fault, but a few hiccups. Nonetheless, see, I'd planned an afternoon flight to Seattle where we would stay the night in an airport hotel with a quick flight to Anchorage the next morning, the capital of Alaska. But after a flight delay that afternoon, a bit of a maze of an airport and a broken-down hotel shuttle, we checked into our room and immediately dialed the front desk to ask for a wake-up call that would come just three hours later. So we did not sleep that night so much as we napped restlessly before rolling back out of the hotel to the airport and onto our flight, which was thankfully mostly uneventful, but no good for sleeping on. And so when we finally arrived in Anchorage early the next morning, we were exhausted from the journey, but we knew we had to keep moving throughout the day or we would never adjust to the new time zone. We had to stay awake and do things until we went to sleep that night. So we got off the plane, we picked up our luggage, and Jennifer turned to me and asked what we were going to do that day. And I said, I don't know. I've never been to Anchorage before. See, I'm sure there are lots of great things to do there. That's why we were visiting. I just didn't know what they were. And it slowly came to light that my understanding of planning a trip was that I came up with the various locations in Alaska to visit, like Anchorage. And I planned the route, booked the hotel, the airfare, and that was it. We'd figure out the rest when we got there. We did. And while it didn't always work out exceptionally well, we did stumble into some things we would never have found otherwise. In Anchorage, that first day, we visited a museum where they happened to have a special exhibit on Alaskan baseball. We learned that particularly in the summer when the sun shines nearly the whole day, there's a tradition of playing baseball games in the middle of the night. And so as a result, when we saw a little bit of an ad for a baseball game, we went to that later that night, watched a game between two teams in the Alaskan Summer College League. It was fun, and a part of Anchorage we probably wouldn't have thought to experience otherwise. And every day was like that. Every day required curiosity and exploration, because we never knew what we were going to do, and we never knew what we might find. We had to be willing to be surprised by the unexpected. That sense of curiosity, I think, is at the core of traveling well. Whether or not you have the details all planned out. And I'll tell you, it is better when you have most of the details worked out. I haven't planned any trips since that one to Alaska. And so when our five-year anniversary rolled around and we decided to take a trip to Italy, Jennifer wisely took the lead. Now, it didn't pan out in the end. We still haven't been to Italy because we booked the trip in February of 2020, just two days before Italy was completely shut down from COVID-19. And all of a sudden, there were no flights in or out of the country, so they had to cancel and refund our trip, which we shouldn't have gone on anyway at that time. But for a moment, a brief moment, we were blissfully unaware and planning what we wanted to do in Italy. And so we ordered travel guides. Rick Steves' pocket guide to Rome, to Florence, to Venice, and the 2020 comprehensive Rick Steves Guide to Italy. Very thorough, very detailed, containing everything we needed to plan, every detail of the trip. But as we discovered going through the tour guide, that even the most comprehensive guide isn't intended to replace that spirit of curiosity, and the best travel guides don't try. They list places to visit, as an entrance to the experience, to get the traveler to a place where they can be awed by the unexpected. A guide can suggest the sights to see and even try to describe them, but it is a foolish traveler who thinks that they might fully know a place from the description, as if they might walk into St. Mark's Basilica and say, ah, yes, this is exactly 
what I thought it would be like. Curiosity is a necessity for the traveler who wants to be impacted by their travels. Rick Steves, the one who wrote the tour guides, talks about this when he described how the road is for him a church, a place to celebrate creation and diversity. Now, he doesn't use the word curiosity, but he talks about the importance of being surprised and of letting travel broaden our perspective beyond what we expect something to be. I have a clip about two minutes long where he talks about this and invite us to take a look. Oh, it's not on there. This is what happens when you put things in and then it doesn't, doesn't sync up later. Let me tell you about how he describes it. He talks about how church is for him, uh, how the road is for him a church. That there's something that happens when you go out in the world and you see other places and other people that can awe you and strike you deep to your core. And he says, what a heartbreak it is when someone's travel doesn't expand their wonder or their love, doesn't leave them with that best of all gifts that travel can provide, which is a broader perspective, a richer understanding of the world where we live. What a heartbreak it is to go and to travel and to only see what we expect to see, to only find things that fit within our understanding of the world. This, he says, is why the road might just be for him, church. Now, the road might be church. The earliest Christians, in fact, didn't talk about being a part of the church, but described themselves as followers of the way, drawing on this imagery of journeying as they traveled behind Jesus and modeled their lives after him. Their faith was one of movement and of growth, the process of expanding in love, of continual transformation, is essential to our faith. And so it is, as Rick Steves says, a heartbreak when we travel through the world and through our lives in a way that just accentuates everything we already think. It's easy to do, to imagine that places and people will be just what we expect them to be, to only look for confirmation of our own understanding But this isn't how Jesus walked and moved through the world. Our gospel reading today is a traveling story. Before we began our reading, because I didn't give us all of the verses that could have been read, the author of John sets the scene for us. Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Judea to Galilee. The two regions sit more or less above and below one another, but with Samaria in the middle. And so most Jews traveling from one to the other would make an eight or nine hour detour to avoid even walking through Samaria. Because the nations shared some common history but had split centuries ago and were now enemies. And the Jews thought they knew the Samaritans. They were half-breeds and pagans, a people to avoid. But the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's the word that it uses. Jesus had to go. Because sometimes traveling outside of our own borders, past the reaches of our own culture, is more necessity than luxury. So Jesus and the disciples journey through Samaria. And about noon, they pause in a place called Sychar. And the disciples go into town to buy food while Jesus, tired from his journey, rests near a well. And while he's there, a woman comes out to the well to draw water. 
do we know this woman? For most of our history, preachers and readers have decided that we know this woman all too well. She is a prostitute, a harlot, a seductive and immoral woman with a shady past, we have decided, based on only a very few clues. She has come to the well in the middle of the day. She has had five husbands, and the man she is now with has not married her. That's all we know. We don't know if they were just extra thirsty that day, needed an extra trip to the well. We don't know if she was widowed five times over or divorced, and if so, why? And we don't know why she's not currently married in a culture that requires women to have a man in order to function in society. We can make assumptions. We can set out expectations for her. But this might only serve to limit how well we get to know her. Jesus, on the other hand, talks to her. Their conversation is the longest recorded conversation Jesus has with anyone across all of the Gospels, longer than he talks to any of his disciples, to any of his accusers and adversaries, longer than he talks to any of his own family. He talks to this woman. And at first, it seems like the woman herself might have a narrow view of who she is. Because Jesus asks for water, and she politely reminds him in the form of a question that he is a Jew, and she is a Samaritan. And a Jew wouldn't want water from a Samaritan, and so what more even needs to be known about her? But Jesus presses on. He's more than that, he says. And if she could see deeper than that to who he really was, then she would be asking him for water, for living water. And as the conversation starts to wind its way back and forth, it becomes clear that Jesus has looked past the immediate assumptions and expectations to really see this woman at the well. She doesn't have a husband, she tells him. And Jesus says that she has answered well. He tells her that she is five husbands, has had five husbands, and isn't married to the man she is currently with. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't ask for her repentance, doesn't even mention sin here or anywhere else in their conversation. He's just describing her as if to say, I see you. And when she is seen, when she knows that she is seen, she suddenly turns to religion. Sir, I see that you are a prophet, she says, and while our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, you and your people say it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. And it's not a deviation from the conversation, though it might seem like it. It's actually a continuation, because when she is seen, when she sees that she is seen, she sees that Jesus is who he says he is. And so she wants to know from him how to be faithful in worship. And Jesus tells her, The location doesn't matter now as long as you worship in spirit and in truth because God is found everywhere and so we can worship anywhere. There is no single well guarded by any one people where the living water can be found. It fills creation, fills those who have found God in unexpected places like Sychar in Samaria where a woman once left behind her water jar because she found living water in the one who saw past expectations to who she really was. It is said that water always flows to the lowest point, and it may well be that living water always flows to the deepest point, to our deepest point, embracing the fullness of who we are, not who we are expected to be or become, not who others see us as or we view ourselves, but the depths of who God created and who God loves. Woman leaves the well and offers a simple and yet profound gospel proclamation to the people of the city, 
This man has told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? Perhaps the whole of the gospel might begin in being seen by God. Perhaps those with the curiosity to look past expectations to find the deeper person within might reflect the very face of Christ. The disciples saw her before she left, but they said nothing. They were shocked, the text says, but no one had the curiosity to ask, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They could have been afraid of being rude or simply thought they knew enough about her from just having seen her. They never try to learn more about her and so misunderstand when Jesus rejects the food that they bought from the market. He is fed by the work he is doing, that he has done in meeting the woman at the well. Open your eyes, he tells his disciples. Open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for the harvest. The disciples have closed their eyes with assumptions and expectations about the Samaritans, unable to see that they are ready to embrace the deep love that God has for them and all it might take is seeing them. Many Samaritans in that city believe because of the woman's word, because of her testimony, that Jesus really saw her. And so Jesus ended up staying two days, celebrating that the seeds once planted had now turned to harvest. In this last week, we introduced our welcoming statement as it was developed and refined through conversation Earlier this year, we sent it out by email and have sent them uh, by mail as well. Incidentally, if you haven't gotten one, we encourage you to join our email list and we can help you with that or to get in our directory where we have your mailing address. Uh, It came out of these conversations about who we want to be as a welcoming church that invites, includes, and sees all people. And so we've shared it with the congregation so we have a chance to reflect on it for a few weeks before sharing it more broadly with the community around us. And as I have been reflecting on this scripture this past week, on the curiosity that God evokes us in us to understand and see one another, I've been reminded of one sentence that I remember that we added to the statement along the way, because as we were talking about this work, about welcoming all people into our community of faith, it was pointed out that we might not know what it will look like to welcome everyone. And so it was suggested and we added a line to say we look forward to hearing how we can welcome and include you. Faith calls us on a journey to open our eyes to one another, to know how little we know about one another, and to learn to see ourselves and others as God sees, to open our eyes to look to encourage the curiosity to understand. He told me everything I've ever done, said the woman who once found living water at a well. What a gift it is to be seen and loved for all of who we are. Thanks be to God. Friends, I invite you to stand as you are able as we continue.